0: An Erios production.
1: I, I, don't want you anymore, but I wish that you were here and I This is the Cardamom Pod, Codule Magazine's culture podcast, hosted by me, Nadia Agrawal, and made in partnership with Erios Network. I've wanted to be a novelist ever since I was a kid. And in the last few years, I've been able to pursue it seriously. Something I've realized is that publishing is a weird industry. There's kind of a lot of shadowy practices around how to get your work published. You have to first write something, like a manuscript or a proposal, and then you have to find the right agent to pitch it to which you do through a query letter and then from there the agent can ask to read the full manuscript or talk to you more about your proposal or they could reject you and then you're back to start and even once you get signed on with an agent you have to go through a bit of a process to get your story bought by a publishing house and then from there you have to do more edits typically and usually you're still a couple years out from your publishing day even when your book has already been sold. Now explaining all of this to people who have no interest in getting published or who know nothing about publishing or writing a book feels like speaking another language. There's definitely a lot of curiosity because I think everyone feels like one day they'll write a book about their life or about their experience in their industry or they'll put out some great work of nonfiction or that they just have a novel lingering in them somewhere. But once you start getting into the actual nitty-gritty of publishing, it becomes a much weirder, stranger concept. And it feels like for a lot of writers, especially writers of color, like this is on purpose. There's a lot of rules and regulations when it comes to publishing that are almost kept out of the hands of the people who could actually really stir things up. It's obvious that there is sort of a lack of diversity in publishing. You can go into a bookstore or a library and not find that many writers of color who can reflect your own experiences back to you. It feels that reading is really about understanding white people's experiences and white and history through white people's perspectives. It doesn't really feel like it's something that's meant for people of color or people from other marginalized groups. It's really about privilege at the end of the day. And a lot of this has been coming under scrutiny, right? There are pitch series on Twitter pursuing diverse writers for diverse readers. There's a lot of steps being taken for own voices campaigns to bring more books out that reflect people's realities. And even through all this good work done on the part of writers or agents or editors or allies, it is feels like there's still a stiltifying effect, that a lot of this has happened sort of in recent years and that there's still a long way to go before we see some kind of racial parody in publishing. Not only in the books that are being published, but in the people who work in publishing themselves. There's a lot of gatekeeping in publishing. We know that there are certain kinds of stories that get published and certain kinds of stories that don't. And even within stories that get published, the ones that get platformed and pushed through the marketing department so that they get nice glossy billboards or they get onto talk shows or they're put on you know oprah's reading list or reese witherspoon's reading list or whatever reading list it feels like there's a specific note that they're all hitting especially the stories by people of color sometimes it feels like the books that are out there are not actually as gritty and realistic as our own lived experiences that they're somehow A refraction of publishing's insecurities, of white guilt, of a certain kind of voyeurism. In the controversy around American dirt last year, in which a white woman wrote from the perspective of uh, Mexican, Central American immigrants crossing over the border into America from Mexico, She came under a lot of scrutiny and a lot of ire because she was writing from an experience that she didn't understand, and what she was actually doing was flattening the reality of that experience through her perspective. That book, despite all of the apology notes, all of the letters that were sent out from the publishing house, still got a lot of media attention, positive media attention, positive reviews. That book is still being sold and, you know, you can still find it in the wild. Even when that kind of thing happens, publishing sort of moves on unscathed and the people who are allowed to pick up the pieces are writers of color or agents of color, are editors of color who want a different world. But even when there are steps being made to diversify publishing, it can sometimes ring hollow. In a now-deleted tweet from an industry insider, they said that they were receiving tons of DMs from black writers who had been ghosted by agents that had previously solicited their work during the aftermath of the George Floyd murder. There is kind of this effect that happens when something huge like that happens, when there's a national crisis. Publishing tries to sort of scramble to cover themselves, or sometimes there is a genuine interest in representing voices that aren't really making it through the various publishing filters. But at the end of the day, when those books don't get published or when those contracts fall apart or when those agents don't follow up, it doesn't really matter what the original intention was. As a result, it's really hard to get published and that's sort of the end of that story. It's It feels like not only is it nebulous to understand how publishing works, all the steps you have to take people you have to talk to, but that at the end of the day there might not even be space for you and your book and your story. This doesn't even speak to the strange incestuous network that exists between universities, lit mags, publishing houses, agents of reputation, celebrities, all of these sort of ways that nepotism runs deep or that classism runs deep or racism runs deep that's sort of cemented in the system itself. We know that there's infrastructural issues in almost every industry when it comes to race. Publishing is no different. I've been thinking about this a lot. As a South Asian writer, as a writer who happens to be South Asian, as a writer of South Asian stories. Because what this could mean for me and for writers like me is just simply unfairness, injustice to the stories that we're trying to tell. And even within the situation, if I were to somehow get my book in front of an agent or in front of an editor or bought by a publishing house, the demands that would be put on me there are still sort of scary. Nabin Rutnam puts it really well in Lit Hub in their essay, Curry Books, on authenticity and our expectations of South Asian writers. They write, The concept of the Indian writer has since expanded into the idea of the South Asian writer, the author of Immigrant Fiction. The category has broadened, and the critical need to define brown writers in English by their exact place of physical and linguistic origin has lessened. Contrarily, the critical and popular discussion around what's between the pages of one of their books is perhaps more narrowly definition-focused than ever. As the tropes and genre conventions around books by South Asian authors have accumulated over the decades, the expectations for what brown writers are supposed to do in their work have narrowed. This is a complaint I hear a lot, or these are conversations that I am party to often, where it kind of feels that there are demands that are placed on us in terms of story and construct. That either an editor will tell you to shoehorn something in somehow, either through some sort of soft edit or soft suggestion or kind of a marketing conceit, or The only books that will actually make it that far are the ones that adhere to some sort of strict publishing understanding of our stories. And that could mean overly simplified immigrant narratives or stories that are really full of tropes. Like, I don't know, you could probably name a million different South Asian writer tropes off the top of your head. And I'm thinking of things like generational divides or culture clashes or... Family drama over weddings, or just weddings in general, arranged marriages, mentions of mangoes, monsoons, the clink of bangles, red saris, greased hair, grandmother's hands, overly lascivious detail of food that still somehow sounds like the Indian buffet you get at any Indian restaurant on the weekends, uh... There's definitely a lot that I've left out, but that feels like a story right there. It feels like there's somehow a rite of passage where all South Asian writers at one point in their career feel like they have to write a wedding novel of some kind. And I say this as a South Asian writer who's currently writing a wedding novel. There is definitely a rich curriculum of books and movies and TV shows that really try to handle the concept of the South Asian wedding because it feels like we have to. This doesn't even speak to the sort of divide that exists between novels that come from the subcontinent and novels that come from the diaspora. I don't really feel as a writer and as a reader like we've gotten enough novels about the first-gen experience or even the second-gen experience now and as a result what we get are the few examples are really easy to criticize because what they do is they create a kind of flattening effect when you only have a handful of books to look to to see how they treat the subcontinent or to see how they treat family or legacy or cultural divide or ethnicity or the politicization of brown skin, it kind of feels like they have to sort of speak for the entirety of the experience. And of course, we know that that doesn't work. Representation is kind of a good pursuit in the way that it widens the picture, but it is in itself unsatisfying and so what that ends up creating is a bottlenecking i think of stories written by south asian writers in the diaspora and south asian writers on the subcontinent have their own feelings around writing works in english for example and how that represents their experiences and even what a western publishing house would consider publishable from someone on the subcontinent. What kind of critical mass they would have to reach before they're even thought of. There's a lot of conversations in and out of this topic. And I think that there's a lot of valid experiences that we're not even hearing yet because the conversation around publishing has been so cloak and dagger. It's been so kept in the shadows because for a long time, it was just such an inaccessible industry. And now we're really seeing the widening of this conversation and we're seeing the widening of storytelling and the widening of publishing. And it's really exciting. That's why I was really looking forward to the conversation I have in this episode with Jenny Bott, who's a podcaster and a writer herself. She really does do a deep exploration of the experiences of South Asian writers when it comes to publishing. And what she's learned in her work through her podcast has been really illuminating for me as a writer and as a reader and as a person who wants to see South Asian writers continue to get published. I hope you enjoy it. We'll be right back after the break. I don't want you anymore, but I'm blind. I'm blind. I wish you were here. I'm here with a writer, literary translator, book critic, and podcaster, Jenny Bott, whose short story collection, Each of Us Killers, was published in September. Her podcast, Stacy Books, explores South Asian writers' journey to publishing. Thanks so much for joining me today.
0: Thank you, Nadia. I'm glad to be here. Thank you.
1: I, I think what really struck me in your biography when, you know, when I was um, reading up on you, was that you were an engineer for many years before becoming a full-time writer, yes? Correct, yes. So what prompted that change?
0: Well, I mean, it wasn't so much a change, because I've been writing for a long time anyways. It's just that, you know, traditional uh, South Asian culture, we tend not to see writing as necessarily, at least in my generation, my parents didn't necessarily see writing as a serious uh, profession. And so what I was, you know, I, I went and did the traditional engineering degree and worked in the corporate world, but I would use my weekends and evenings. I would take writing workshops at Iowa at uh, you know, University of Michigan and places like that. And then um, write on the side, but I, I didn't, and, and I actually also joined a couple of MFA's and then dropped out as well, you know, um, those low residency ones, it, it just wasn't working for me. But, you know, so I'd always been writing, when I say that I switched from engineering to writing, what I mean by that is I gave up my full-time job at the age of 40 and then slowly tried to get into more of a full-time writing uh, you know, writing mode, writing as a career. So that's, that's, that was the switch, that was the change. Um, but the writing had been going on for years before that. I just wasn't getting anything out there to publish because I, I didn't feel confident. I had invested enough in my craft or you know so yeah
1: yeah actually I it's interesting that you say that uh South Asian writers of your generation or your parents didn't really view writing as a kind of full-time thing I mean even when I was growing up and I was being advised on career pathways by my parents my mother always sort of told me to keep a day job if I wanted to write like writing could be a hobby and I could get as much fulfillment out of it as I wanted but it should never be the main course of right. my career yeah so it's it's kind of a the template really isn't there I would say mm-hmm. or like you know the the sort of easy to follow guide for becoming a writer isn't necessarily there it, it's not I think
0: and generally what I've found with my Indian American or South Asian American friends who happen to uh, you know have been full-time writers for, for, you know, years, it's usually because they've gone into academia. And, you know, academia gives them that pathway to write and publish because it is a requirement of the job. So,
1: yeah. Yeah, definitely. I'm, I think a lot about the earlier sort of, I don't know if I would describe it as a scandal or more like an outcry around the book American Dirt, that came out, and then the subsequent sort of Maya culpa from the publishing house, uh, Flatiron, I believe.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And just like where that really, how that marked our conversations around literature. Mm-hmm. How it was sort of simultaneously like, I think we were all extremely confused that a book like that could be published, you know, in this age, at this time. And for reader, or sorry, for listeners who are unfamiliar with American Dirt, it was, um, a writer who identifies as a cis white woman or actually depending on the conversation sometimes identifies as latina mm. writing about the migrant experience crossing the border from central america from mexico into america and the violence that um that ensues and it was extremely white gazy it was full of a lot of um you know factual errors plus a lot of appropriative storytelling it's just a, a mess all over the place and it was published and I, I believe that she got another book contract or some other deal after that as well so like even though um there was a lot of outcry on twitter and on social media against it you know she's still a successful writer and she's still able to keep doing her work but I think that the conversation around that was sort of one of the most empowered moments for writers of color and for readers of color and people who care about stories that like people of color
0: You're absolutely right. I I remember when all that broke out and yes, you know, I think it was great how writers of color rallied together, you know, across the color lines as it were, and spoke out against it. Uh, A whole bunch of writers went to Flatirons offices and had demanded changes and were, were, you know, granted those changes. That said, as late as August or September, I was checking and I saw that American Dirt was still on the bestseller lists at Nielsen and New York times. So they clearly didn't withdraw the book. They withdrew certain events, but they did not withdraw the book. They did not take away her advance. And there was no punitive action. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was just a, yep. Mea culpa we will do better next time. Right. <laughs> okay. So f- fine. That's, that's, let's keep, let's, you know, be hopeful and let's keep our fingers crossed that, you know, we won't have another American Dirt. But, you know, there we are. Uh, and I will tell you that I remember still seeing the book being sold in our, in our, my local Costco. So, and, and I have um, Facebook friends who are parts of, you know, they're members of book clubs. Um, I mean, I say friends, they're just connections that, you know, they send a friend request and I accept. But, um, the, part, the, the members of book clubs and they talk about how their book club is reading American Dirt. This was as as late as last month. I saw somebody saying, "Oh yeah, we chose American Dirt for our book club reading and really excited." So, you know, I sometimes feel like we writers, as a community, we do come together, but sometimes I think we live in our own little echo chamber or mm-hmm. filter bubble, and we all protest on social media and then go away feeling good about it, but the reality on the ground hasn't changed that
1: much. Then right i would say that i i think white writers and writers of color live kind of in two different worlds
0: mm-hmm.
1: the way that we're treated the way that we're able to exact some kind of change on our environment is very different mm-hmm. and like even the way that twitter is divided between those two communities it's like it's like being on a different website yeah. it is it, yeah it's very much an echo chamber but it's also like it, it has to, I think there are, I think it does incorporate some publishing houses and some gatekeepers and some agents and mm-hmm. you know it's kind of like it's a it's a Venn diagram, and you know the amount of people sort of falling between I don't know if it's getting bigger or getting smaller, but it's definitely yeah I, I can see what you're saying, there's definitely sort of a division that's been put in place, and I don't know what's gonna allow us to to over it. Well, no, and and I think the harder part also is for writers of color
0: like us. What happens is, you know, publishing gatekeepers as well as certain media gatekeepers, they tend to have one or two uh, narrow views of what our cultural story is. And so when they see books or narratives that confirm their biases, so there's a big confirmation bias going on. So that when, it, when they see books and narratives that confirm their biases or align with their way of um, thinking or their image of our culture, they promote that. And I, I'm not gonna name names, but I will say there's been a couple of big books this year from let's say the Indian American uh, contingent. And unfortunately they perpetuate certain stereotypes and tropes, but, because they are those stereotypes and tropes confirm what certain publishing and media gatekeepers think of when they think of India, those books get touted as the book of the year. Mm. And then here's the thing that happens, because we only get one or two seats at the table a year. And when that seat is then taken by that one book, which is pandering to certain stereotypes or tropes, there is no room for anyone else. There is no room for any other story. So that becomes very difficult. That becomes very difficult.
1: Yeah, in some ways we're forced to operate within a scarcity model, even if I think that the writings of South Asian writers is expansive and that world is the universe. Mm -hmm. I think you're right, we are often forced into a very scarce situation where only a few of us are allowed at the table Um, To change gears a bit, I wanted Mm -hmm. to talk to you about your short story collection, Each of Mm -hmm. Us Killers. Mm -hmm. Um, The collection is preoccupied with occupation, work as a form of identity or escape or a ladder of some kind towards something else. I'm curious about how you landed on this theme. Yeah, that's a good question. So I think um, it's it's definitely related
0: uh, to my giving up my own you know, long-time career and then all of a sudden I was trying to transition into this new field and and try to become a full-time writer somehow, make writing pay the bills somehow. And, you know, there was this liminal transitional period where I kind of felt a little rudderless. I kind of felt like the ground beneath my feet was still shifting too much. And I didn't know, I was a single childless woman So when people met me, it was hard for them to put me into a nice little box. So what do you do? And then I say, well, I'm a writer. Okay, what have you published? Well, I haven't published anything yet. But, you know, so um, work and how much we identify with our work, how much of our work uh, and our working life constitutes a part of our own identity and our sense of self and at the same time how much does our personal identity impinge upon our working life as in you know our class and our gender and our race and our caste if we're in india all of these things were huge preoccupations for me as i was trying to find my place back in the world if you like you know trying to create a new identity for myself after the age of 40 and so certainly I was thinking a lot about those things. And then as I looked around me, because I had moved back to India in 2014 after decades of having been away and, you know, just being older, going back in, a, in this situation where I didn't have that work label anymore. Uh, I wasn't somebody's wife or somebody's mother. It was difficult to answer questions and to deal with some of the sociocultural biases and, and issues. And so all of that, all of those preoccupations obviously played into each of the stories that are in this collection, because I was very much interested in understanding how our personal identity and the work identity clash and how we all navigate you know, those fault lines of class and caste and gender and race and nationality.
1: There is a, there is obviously a a fraught relationship between occupation and caste. And you mentioned it, um, you also said that it's, it's, it's interesting that you said that caste in India, but I think lately we've been seeing a lot of news stories coming out about, um, specifically companies in the Silicon Valley Mm -hmm. where caste has been demonstrated to be a a mode of discrimination, actually, even Mm -hmm. in America, like caste has followed South Asian immigrants to America. Um, And I've been thinking about this a lot, which is why I bring it up, because Mm -hmm. it's obviously something that I think that we should be very vigilant of here as we operate as political individuals, because just because we live here doesn't mean that the old world or even, I guess, in in a lot of ways, still very contemporary modes of discrimination don't exist. Um, And I'm I'm really interested in this in your book as well, because some of your stories delve into it um, in time and opportunity, for example. And I was really curious if you could speak to this a little bit more because I think this is such an an interesting moment, obviously for occupation, for uh, working class people, for marginalized people who are marginalized through socioeconomic means, um, and like whether that also factored into your storytelling. Oh yes,
0: yeah. I mean, what I what I thought we. So I grew up in India, right, and so I grew up with the whole class and caste thing and gender thing, and you know some of it I internalized, some of it I learned to question over time. but going away, coming away from India, living in the u k the u s and Europe, and then going back as an older person, I was seeing all of that with maybe a fresh um, set of eyes, and what i what I thought is it's a lot more complex and convoluted than we might think. It isn't just a caste and relig- a caste hierarchy or just a religious discrimination, because even within, you know, you've got the sub-hierarchies within caste. You've got the sub-hierarchies within religion. So it's not just about Hindus and Muslims discriminating against each other. There's also, as you said, in time and opportunity, you've got a Muslim street vendor who feels that one of the you know, young boys who works for him and comes from a lower caste, you know, he must be the bad guy. He must be the one stealing, right? And so um, I wanted to make sure that I was addressing some of the complex layers of these discriminatory forces and not just making it, uh, you know, not just doing the stereotypes and tropes that we know of, which is just, okay, Hindu and Muslim core you Know or just higher upper class and lower class because there's a lot more layers in between, there's a lot of shades of gray, and so I certainly, you know, that, that was important. And then when you talk about the caste um, issue in Silicon Valley, for example, what I saw it firsthand the company that is in the spotlight right now for the caste issues and the lawsuit was one of my clients when I worked as a management consultant, mm-hmm. and there's a huge huge south asian population that works at that company right and they come from different castes and classes and uh, religions and i saw it firsthand i i would see you know where people would ask what's your last name and then if they didn't get a good sense of who you were just from the last name then they would say well what where what part of india are your parents from And then if they recognize that part of India, then they'd go even further. But yeah, but what's your ancestral village? That's how deep sometimes the questions would get. And I I remember sitting in conference rooms and watching two people having an exchange like that and seeing one get very uncomfortable while the other one kept probing. So this is reality in the 21st century, even now in Silicon Valley, right? So, I mean, these are forces that affect how we treat each other in the workplace. Mm. Yeah, I think it's still a very valid concern and issue and uh, not restricted only to, you know, one part
1: of the world. You know? Yeah, I, your podcast also does some of, of the work looking at um, occupation, specifically the mm-hmm. occupational nature of publishing, mm-hmm. asking writers questions about their publishing process, pulling back the curtain on um, the murky industry that is so often seeing keeping people like us out, where did the inspiration come from for Daisy Books, the podcast?
0: Yeah, so that was, again, it was really, um, I I had actually tweeted early last year, I think January 2019, asking, would there be interest in a podcast that focused on South Asian literature, not, you know, uh, not just India or Pakistan, but just, you know, that whole region, because we have shared history, you know, I don't like to think of you know, monolithic India and and Pakistan, we all have this shared history in which, you know, uh, colors, all our cultural artifacts, whether they're books or artwork or music, you know. And so I I tweeted that and I got a great response. And then of course, my life last year got a little bit hectic, and I never got around to it. And then when COVID-19 happened this year, and a few other writer friends who also had debut books coming out, and You know, by around, I would say, April, March, I would say even March, uh, before the month ended, we all knew that this was going to be a terrible year for all of us who had books coming out. And I think by then already the one or two big buzzy books had already made big splashes. And we were all like, yep, okay, nobody's going to care about our books now because, you know, that particular slum saga or that particular, you know, big novel's done it now and that's the India book for the year everybody's going to come with that and we're not going to get anything, you know. So uh, I thought, well, what's I could sit there and complain about it. I could tweet about it and complain, but I thought that's just me putting more toxic, negative energy out in the world. So is there anything I can do? And I thought, well, the only thing I can do from where I'm sitting, I can, and I was doing this anyway, I was sending out pitches for book reviews so I could review books for, you know, writers um, of South Asian descent. Uh, unfortunately, freelance budgets had been drying up um, around that time as well because people, everybody was like, they didn't know what was going to happen. So I was getting a lot of the big places, big name venues telling me, I don't even know if I can take more, and more books. It's, you know, all the reviews are being done by our staff writers. I said, oh, okay. So the review thing wasn't happening as I had planned. And so then I thought, well, then I'll just have to do something else. And so I, I thought I'll create this podcast. And the goal is to focus on as much diversity and different narratives and different stories and, you know, maybe the ones that are not getting airtime uh, from big media venues, um, because I want people to see the richness of South Asian stories and not just think of us as, you know, the arranged marriage saga, and the slum saga, and the immigrant saga, you know, there's a whole lot more out there too. And so um, that's what started this. And, you know, I think by now, I've probably mentioned at least, or mentioned or described at least 100 books by writers of South Asian descent that have come out this year alone. And that's a staggering number because, for me anyways, because I think there is no way that those, even 10% of those books got enough coverage. And we see average mediocre books get coverage. And there are some of those books that that I chanced upon because of my research and work. And I thought, wow, this book should have had a little bit more attention than it did. And so it is unfortunate that this is what happens. And, And so that's how the podcast started. I just wanted to shine a light on some other folks and maybe put out some positive energy as opposed to more negative energy. I didn't want to complain. I didn't want to write another essay about it, you know.
1: Um, so yeah, that's kind of how it started. That's so great. And I, what I really enjoy about the podcast is you get writers to speak really honestly about, you know, the trials of publishing, like what it took to get them to the point of publishing, because Mm -hmm. I think that that's, at least in my experience, it can be a very nebulous process Mm -hmm. sometimes. And the people who have information are not always very willing to share it with you or, You know can change from person to person it's like a very subjective game typically
0: it it um, is yeah it is and and to your point i'll tell you another big thing that i've learned firsthand myself because i've had two books out this year unfortunately um (laughs) or fortunately whichever way you look at it i had one in the us which is the one you mentioned and then i had a literary translation come out last month in india and i had been planning to go back there for the launch but i can't and so the whole publicity cycle, the marketing, the promotion, and the launch cycle, for South Asian writers, it's a very different ball game. because I've, I've got some friends who've gone out and hired independent publicists, because they're with small presses or university presses. And those places, they do the, a little bit of their own marketing or publicity, but they don't know where the South Asian readership is, right? They don't market to the right readers, so then these folks have had to go out and and spend their own money to go and hire independent publicists. Unfortunately, most of the independent publicists tend to be not South Asian, because we don't have a lot of South Asians in that field yet, and so you've got another issue where they don't know what the media outlets are and where they should be pitching these books, so you've got that problem. And then the, the books that are getting taken up by the big publishers who've got the money to spend on advertising and you know, getting that book and that author out into book events and you know, get them on, on into the New York Times and Time Magazine and Oprah and all these places, right? That's great, but that only happens with those one or two books a year that comes out with the top five publishers, that's it. So yeah, I think you know, there are a lot of challenges with publishing beyond just even getting the book contract it's it's hard enough to get the book deal because there's only you know so many seats at the table but once you've got the deal it's not a smooth sailing journey after that so yeah
1: well it was so incredible to talk to you today and to get the lowdown on all of your projects where can our listeners find you online oh yeah so um yeah the
0: Easiest place is to go to my website. It's Jennybuttwriter.com. That's one word, JennyBartWriter. And, you know, all my social media links are there. I pretty much spend more time on Twitter than I do in other places, but I do try to spend a bit of time everywhere These, this year, is at least because of the books. Um, but yeah, you know, the website is the is the best place. And, and Nadia, thank you so much. I appreciate uh, you making the time to Talk about these all these issues that are so close to my
1: heart and I, I
0: appreciate you taking this out to your listeners as well.
1: Yeah, I really enjoyed it. It's honestly to me it's just like a literary nerd out so
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's good. that's great.
1: <laughs> nothing mm-hmm. off my back I hadn't had time. cardamom pod is made by kajal magazine in partnership with erios network aziz adib is our producer with help from Jivika verma our music is baita's name from their ep just before the world ends until next time keep an eye out for evil eyes
0: Powered by ACAS.